Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. So today, I am so excited to be talking to Anna Gott. She is an internet friend who has built a vibrant internet village uh, called the Interintellect. I think it's a community of curious humans exploring ideas online, which is like, it just benefited my life so much in terms of other people to explore ideas with and probably readers for my book. Uh, but she has such an interesting past, uh, has done so many things, was a published poet by the age of 19, was writing lyrics for underground bands in Hungary, uh, screenwriter, playwright, uh, startup founder turned somebody that did spawn the interintellect. Welcome to the Pathless Path, Anna. Thank you so much. I feel like for me, it's like pathless, paths, plural, or something like that. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. There's a, there's a whole highway system going on here. I'm so, yeah, I'm, we'll definitely explore that. I'm so fascinated with people who have reinvented multiple times. Uh, but the question I start with is, what are the stories and scripts that you grew up with around what you were supposed to be doing in the world as you came of age? That's such an interesting question. I think for, um, for me, there were multiple completely contradictory stories um, that I had to internalize or espouse. And I think by, in the first like 30 years of my life, I, I tried to either d- make do by all of all three or four scripts that I had, despite their being completely contradictory, or I would try to kind of like cyclically live by one or the other. And I think for me, the and I'm happy to kind of go through uh, the ones that come to my mind um, um, right away. But I think for me, the journey was to understand how deeply contradictory these expectations are and that it's impossible. And also that if there are, you know, some people reach atheism through understanding that there are all these contradictory religions that are, each of them, you know, every one of them is convinced that it's the only one path. And then you kind of hack the code of what religion is. And I think the same goes for overly dogmatic expectations of people. At some point you realize that it's impossible to do. In, in, what in, were in, some of them? So some are gendered and some are not. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why they are so contradictory. So on the one hand, definitely a narrative of success um, and of um, not being on the trodden path, of, of being a very autonomous creator, an autonomous maker. I think m- multiple generations of my family had seen themselves as people who make something people want, you know, and, and, and most of them did. I think I'm probably still the least successful person in my family ever. Um, and so, so that was one of them. And then later on, when I grew up and I started interviewing my older family members, I learned more about, you know, social mobility, surviving the Holocaust, losing everything in one war or the other and starting from zero and, or immigrating, um, and, and, and the narratives and internal strengths, you know, needed for, for overcoming those obstacles. Um, some, some narratives that I had were, um, very gendered, 
um, and also very contradictory within that. I think most women will tell you that, um, you know, you have these completely nonsensically contradictory expectations uh, projected at you. Um, so I definitely had the eldest child, smart daughter shall bring glory to the family and somehow money for the parents. Um, I had shut up and marry well, put out your boobs and marry well kind of things that was very nice. Yeah, definitely great, um, uh, you know, advice to daughters. But I remember turning 30, I was in London and feeling all of a sudden that most of the narratives that I had as a woman had run out because they really only implicitly, you know, stand until you're 30. And where I'm from, really subconsciously, I think most people think that at the age of 30, a woman should have already absorbed into her family, um, should have lost her identity by that time. And to me, that was incredibly liberating. I mean, I, I started entering inside when I was 31, so just one year after this. And a lot of things had to happen in my private life and, and with my immigration uh, and some of these scripts to, um, to have fallen, you know, away for me to start that. But... Um, but I remember this almost intoxicating sense of freedom at age of 30 that I have failed as a woman. That's great. Now I can do anything I want. I can just be a human. I can create. I can start a business. I can get rich, you know, do whatever I want, you know. Um, and that was just absolutely fantastic. And I think it, for women at the age of 30, it kind of coincides also with this weird change in how people relate to you. I think for women... A lot of things really start at the age of 30. That's when people first start listening to you, you know, taking you seriously. Um, and so for me, that was a great, um, a very interesting, I mean, it kicked off also very difficult periods in my life, but I feel that my identity basically started there. And I was also like 31 when I realized that I was smart. So that also helped. What are some of the influences from growing up in Hungary? I mean, Eastern Europe is such a unique experience. I mean, you you compared to me, I I didn't really face it's such a polite way of putting it. By the way, it's <laughs> such well, it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, well, don't. <laughs> well, I think for me, I didn't face any crises or challenges really in the U.S. Like we had a pretty smooth existence, and um, you saw rapid change, right? Mm. Um, and what was the effect of that, like growing up as a kid? And it's challenging, right? But there's also strength that comes from that, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, although when you posted those photos on Twitter where show me where you grew up through photos of food, I to me that did look very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we have our flaws. <laughs> only, only like For, <laughs> Yeah, n 90s food culture in America was a low point in food culture for all of history. I'm sorry. You know, my timeline is like people from Malaysia, people from like South India, and then poor Midwestern friends who will like post this some is frozen dish. And I'm not, I'm not, I feel so sorry. I just want to fly over and feed you guys. This is why I married someone from Taiwan. I've course corrected and I, I've married into a good food culture. So that's very clever. That's very clever. I think Tyler Cowan would probably uh, find this a very uh, worthwhile strategy. Um, it's a really interesting thing. I love Leonard Cohen's song, uh, The Future, when you see the 
empires rise and fall in front of your eyes. I think that that's definitely true in 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 Eastern Europe. I mean, Hungarians think that they are Central European, right? And it's everybody else who thinks that we are Eastern European. And when you actually go there, these nuances are are there in weird ways. Um, but that's probably for a different podcast. Um, you don't know when you're young why people are as they are. You kind of see the symptoms, but you don't know the disease. So there is a certain kind of shiftiness and instability in the worldviews, uh, susceptibility to certain ideologies, a distrust or, or, or trust for close circles of friends and family, but a, a wider social distrust. Um, and then when you start, you know, at this, if you're a curious human, you know, you will start asking questions and reading books and you will realize that, oh, actually, if you were part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, then very likely between 1919 and 1963, your family lost everything, at least at some point. Like somebody came and took your stuff and your fields and your shops and your doctorate and your or your children, you like actual things that you are very attached to and your identity. And, and I remember when I was a new immigrant and I really, you know, I left everything behind, like my car, my clothes, my boyfriend, my apartment, my life, my good name, my career, my entire network. And I studied F F everything from zero when I was age of 30. And I remember feeling extremely exposed and, 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 and depraved, you know, of so many things when I was in London at the beginning. And, and, but feeling that this is such a, that this is such an ancient experience of starting anew. And it's actually, What's not normal is never having to experience this in the modern world um, at, uh, in one way or another. Um, so there's definitely, and, and you know, there are great philosophers writing about how, you know, from Adorno to, to later thinkers, how, you know, if you, if you grow up in, a, in an environment where uh, inhumanity has happened, then you will have much lower expectations of, you know, your fellow humans or... Or, or your ideological buildup will be very different. So, yeah, I, I definitely grew up in this. Anything can be taken away from you. My, my grandmother told me, like, anything that's not in your head can be taken away from you. So be smart. <laughs> Read books. Uh, of course, now we know with uh, technology and, 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 you know, other uh, methods that even what's in your head can sometimes be carefully taken away from you. But it's still a little bit more secure there than material possessions. Who were some of the big influences in terms of writers and people you were reading? I know you've read uh, a ton. I feel like your references are just uh, incredible and <laughs> send me down so many curious rabbit holes. Oh, really? Have you read anything in your life that somehow came from Interintellect or my recommendations? It's hard to even know at this <laughs> point because so many of the people I know are one or two degrees connected to the things you've built. Yeah. So. Probably everything. We have the scene. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope to. But I also think that, you know, in certain circles, my references are very normal and shared. It's just that I've changed contacts so many times that I picked up um, different. And of course, I always had, I always wanted to read a little bit different things than everybody around me, you know, um, would be reading. So yeah, probably it's a, it's a, it's a mix of, the obvious and and stuff I sought out for myself. It, uh, I think when I was like starting, I'm thinking probably the most 
the weirdest things that I was reading were dictionaries and encyclopedia. And I was just very curious about words. And I would just sit on my carpet and read a word and, and try to memorize it. And then that my game was that I would either be a French dictionary or an English dictionary or, or just a thesaurus kind of thing. And then I would learn a word and the, my, my game would be to think a, a sentence and immediately build the wa- word into it and just continue thinking. So not, not stop your thinking. It's almost like, I don't know, probably there's some TV show somewhere that <laughs> or game show that has this. So you get a word, a random word from a dictionary, and then you have to use it immediately. And I think I actually like memorized so many words just, uh, just through playing this, I don't know, in my teens when your brain is still working properly. Um, books, I think for me, just novels. I was probably in my early 30s, late 20s when I first really started reading nonfiction. I still am on the fence about nonfiction many, many times. Not just because it's very, very often not the author who wrote them, but, or the author is not the name on the cover, how, how to say that. Um, but the, I mean, you published something outside the, <laughs> you know, the traditional uh, route. So I, I don't, I don't, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but. But the content industry can be a little bit um, exasperating if you're looking for a really original piece of thought or content or or story. Um, So I was just reading the the novels. I was trying to read every good story that would would capture me. And, and, you know, like everybody where I was growing up, you know, you were a little bit uh, dissatisfied with your current whereabouts. And so you would be reading about what's happening everywhere else. (laughs) And, and and travel and feel completely boundless uh, through your reading. So take me to London at 30. Uh, yeah. you, pretty, you pretty much started over, right? You're, you're, it actually starts over, yeah. Very um, <laughs> I'm still and, recovering. I think I still have PTSD over there. <laughs> yeah, what, uh, what were those first weeks like? The first weeks were good because I did not know what I got myself into. <laughs> first weeks, I was like, this is going to be fine. And then it was kind of okay for a year. And then it got very tough. Because for the first year, I thought that I would be able to have a kind of bipolar existence where I would go back to Budapest, but I would have a London life. And somehow I would use these two lives in a way that strengthened each other. Um, and then in January 2015, it became clear that I had to leave for good. Um, and then started a probably two-year period, but really it's only just ending for me when it was really starting from rock bottom. So being completely broke and without a place to live, without friends, without any money. Um, so that, that was very interesting. Um, it, it changed my mind about a lot of things, I think, at the time. Like what? Um, it changed my mind about um, states of grace and searching for a higher being. Because I always thought, you know, I went to a Catholic school and I read, you know, the some of the religious philosophers. And I always thought that when people are rock bottom, that's when, you know, God or the spirit or grace comes. And I, 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 at least for me, it's absolutely not how it works. I think the better I am, the more I feel the grace and, and the ability to give to people and, and, and build community and, 
and be other people's strengths, which I really want to be. That's one of my aspirations. Um, and when I was rock bottom, I was, I became so practical and so much of a survivor. Um, and I felt that it's more like the animalistic bottom of Maslow pyramid. I mean, I didn't do anything, you know, unethical at the time, but I was definitely at my most selfish, um, in those, in those two years. Yeah. Just, just more of a short term mindset than trying to think about long term. Absolutely. Yeah. You, I think there's even um, research to show that when you have PTSD or even very deep depression, you don't have any sense of the future. Um, and I definitely can speak to that when you have major trauma, you can't even think about tomorrow. It's a very interesting. You, you learn a lot about neuroplasticity. I think it's kind of the, the, the darker version of what happens to people during psychedelic experiences or very high levels of meditation. Um, so, yeah, the brain is a very interesting place. So, it, so I have some so weird light because the sun is doing things here. So just let me know if, <laughs> if it's anywhere. No worries. In- Only if it's distracting you. Uh, do you, do <laughs> yeah. you want to adjust it? <laughs> I'm good, but if I have um, like, some weird shadow on me, just let me know. <laughs> no, you look fine. Um, this is the Pathless Path podcast. We yeah. embrace perfect. Perfect imperfections. Ingrid Bergman lighting with half the face and shadow suggestively and the other half looking at Bogar. So where you are now is a very different place than 2015. Uh, what were some of the things that started to shift you in a new direction? It was a long, long process. Um, and at the beginning, I think like everybody, when you make a change in your life, at first you try to operate post-change using your old strategies because that's kind of all you know, right? You can't just wake up and know new things or unlearn old things, right? Um, And so you kind of half-heartedly throw your old strategies at two problems and the first couple of years is just like learning that this is not going to work. Like you can keep doing this um, and wait, but no, just you should just stop doing that. Um, And... I, I think it just went very global, very early. Um, I knew from my old film uh, work, actually, because I worked in film, I had heard a lot of the bad advice about film. So when people started saying that in the startup world, I was just like, no, next. <laughs> you know, like, this is not true. You know, like fall in love with the problem, not the solution, they say to the startup founder. And in the, in, in the screenplay, they are like, okay, but can we root for your hero? Shut up. Next. Um, <laughs> or, you know, in, in, in film, they will tell you, write uh, a con-winning thing in your country and then get a job in Hollywood. That's never happened. Or like, it only happens for directors. It's a very rare path. And it's an outlier path. And they, like, shove so many people into really overfunded, terrible European art movies who are only doing that because they want to work globally. It makes zero sense. So they did. They do this startup-wise as well, like, oh, don't do US, do local. You know, because I don't know, you are in Frankfurt. We should grow the Frankfurt startup scene. And I was like, fuck the local startup scene. You want to build for the public. You have to... Find your users. Maybe they are not here. Maybe they are somewhere else. I don't care. I can just like talk to anybody with this magic <laughs> machine, you know. Um, and so I think I was in London and because I was not really 
integrated inside there. You know, it was very hard to get accepted. Um, I just, I think that was a, it was a very diff- emotionally very difficult experience, but it just sent me on the internet. And then you're talking to Mason Hartman, and then you're talking to Visa Vero Sammy, it's 2017. You're talking to Sam Altman, you're talking to all these people, and who cares where you are? And the next thing I knew, I was in San Francisco. That was my first time in the U.S. And I'm not kidding you, the first meeting I had on New Montgomery Street became my first investor. I was really like fresh off the boat. Um, Because I think but at the time, I really, really knew what I wanted to do and what I had to do and that I was the only person who could really do this um, and that this was perfectly justified and everything in my life kind of, you know, trained me for for dealing with these these problems that I was I was about to be solving as a live job um and also you just you learned so like you learn how how much bad advice there is and and you start trusting at least for me I really started trusting my own guts about things when I had tried everything else that people had recommended to me and it was Sometimes working, but sometimes not. But the statistics were as good as with my own ideas, you know? So I didn't have any data to show that I should listen to other people. Anyway, I mean, I do listen to some people, but, you know, you have to earn it. (laughs) And I think for context, you were working on a startup, right? And it it wasn't exactly what it is now, inter-intellect. But you kept finding yourself kind of drifting in that direction, doing this stuff that became inter-intellect. Yeah, to the point where at some point I was running basically two things. This was the beginning of 2019. And I was so intent on building this app and this bot and, you know, 2016, 17, all those, the, the eras, demands. And then the intern tech was growing on the side. And I was just like, oh, that's just my side project that everybody's interested in. But let me build this <laughs> app, you know. And then at some point I had to sit down and think like, first of all, Everybody, all the three people that I somehow emotionally blackmailed into using my app are in intellect, but there are also like thousands of more people in intrinsic. So what, what is my, what, 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 what am I thinking about? Like, do I think of like, oh, at some point the app will be ready and all these people will be like, yay, another app. And <laughs> Finally. Just there or what? Um, and so I was like, oh, I guess I'm running intrinsic now. And it was a little bit just like, you know, you're in a restaurant and there's like an empty table on a table with all the good foods and all the good friends. And I just like kind of quietly got up from one table and went over and like sat down to the other. And I was like, I'm a little bit late to my own party, but you know, let's do this. <laughs> and then when I decided that, and I decided that I would just run it by myself, um, things really took off. But, you know, everybody told me that I should build an app and that I should have a co-founder. So, <laughs> and I really wanted to get into YC. And I think a lot of my... Uh, Previous act- actions were somehow limited by this uh, obsession that I, oh, if unless I get into YC, I can't build a company and nobody will give me money. Um, and that actually nearly killed me off and made me leave tech. So, you know, but I, I love them, but, you know, it's not for everybody, right? Some people right. have to do some other stuff because they have to be on the pathless path. <laughs> yeah. And, it's really amazing what started to emerge in 2018. I was experiencing this too. I was exper- I was living in Taiwan and uh, feeling lost on my path after uprooting my life a year or two before that and starting to find these people online. And you eventually dropped this article, which I think sort of dropped a bomb on the 
the curious internet. <laughs> and I wanted to read a, a part of it. Um, you were, you're talking about there's this feeling online. And around one and a half years ago, at first faintly, I started noticing a new tune under the buzz. There appeared a positive, encouraging theme that since then has kept growing and mutating and bringing a lot of us together in conversation, unlikely companions from all over the world and layers of society. And it, it was this idea around the interintellect, which I think is a term you coined. Um, and it, it really was something. And it was so exciting when you put this out there. It was like, oh, yes, I'm not crazy. <laughs> These collection of curious humans um, something's happening here. Um, yeah, what what was happening then? I was feeling a little bit, do you know Hugh Laurie? Fry and Laurie have, have this yeah. song, protest song. You know, it's like a Bob Hugh, Dylan parody and they parody. Hugh, like, Hugh Laurie has songs? So back in the day, they had this TV show in the UK called Fry and Laurie. I just Laurie. know House. <laughs> Stephen Fry and, and Hugh Laurie. And they have this wonderful video. It's, it's on YouTube called Protest Song. And they parody you know, John Baez and, and Bob Dylan and all this. And I, I think the, 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 the chorus is like, you know, like they, they list all the societal problems, you know, world hunger, nuclear proliferation, blah, blah, blah. And then the answer, answer is, and it's just like this mumbling. And that's the culmination of every, every verse. And I, I, I really try to avoid that in my article. That I wouldn't be like, oh, here's like a universal solution. Oh, find it in your heart or some other bullshit. Um, I really did. I really do think that um, that simply removing some boundaries between people would help. Um, and this also came from yet another thing that I thought the at the time the contemporary media and discourse was simply wrong about. Like everybody told us that. You know, the internet is terrible. They will murder you. They will cancel you. It's all polarized. You can't leave two humans alone because they will just fight. And I never, I, I'd never seen that. Like I was running all these events and I was bringing together really like opinionated people. And I always felt that, okay, if the kind of set and settings <laughs> are right, you know, then things will be fine. Um, and but it was really only with Interinternet that I started seeing that at scale. And I noticed that there is so much need and demand for this kind of thing. Um, and then I started thinking, okay, maybe we could do culture without culture war. Like, what would that look like? I, I really want to go back to 2018 because I think 2018, at least for me, was kind of a watershed moment in this sense as well, because 2018 was not just a period or 2018, 2019 was not just a period when, oh, this kind of hippie-ish, everybody together, post-rationalists and AI people and painters and musicians that we just like love each other. It was also a time when there was so much pressure to go culture war. Like I distinctly yeah. remember a time on Twitter and I was still on Medium. I was not on Substack yet. When I started feeling that, oh my God, if I started doing culture war content, I would explode. Like I would be huge. I couldn't make a killing. Yeah. And there were actual, you know, queries toward me, sometimes very much like with spoken words 
that, you know, don't do a startup, just like organize parties and be this connector woman. You know, like, I mean, basically it's like, oh, we need, you know, politically ambiguous, so very sociable women who will kind of do these things and be spokespeople of ideas um, that might serve the cultural war agenda. And then I thought, I don't want to do that. First of all, I don't believe that. I am also, I have very different beliefs about politics. You're too curious. <laughs> and, and I thought that's, that's such, that, to me that seems very short-term thinking. I'm more interested in something yeah. that in last hundreds of years. Anyway, so it was very interesting. So 2018, I basically made this decision that even if we're smaller, uh, we will not do those things. Yeah, and you... Basically, what you're doing is making an observation that and a call out to, hey, there used to be these intellectual salons. They were small groups, certain places, famous times of history. They were mostly the elite. But now it's everyone. Everyone can participate. Yes. <laughs> like, how are people missing this? Absolutely. Right? I mean, th this deal that you're getting from society that, oh, you know, you go to university and then you're there for two to five years and you're having a really good time, right? At least most people are having good times. And, and you know, you have access to this cultural and intellectual and artistic abundance. And then the moment when you start getting good at it and start enjoying it, they kick you out. And they're like, well, that was this. Thanks for your money. Now you're an adult and now read newsletters. You know, buy a book at the airport. And, and I think... It's exactly when people grow into the age when they really have something to say. When you have the life experience, when you can read a book, watch a movie, hear somebody speak, and now you have personal experience, you know, your own stories, a lot of other books that you have now read. I want to hear from those people. And the fact that there's no platform for cultural or intellectual interaction where you're safe from political agendas or anybody trying to manipulate your content... To me, the fact that that didn't exist, it just, it seems, it seems still insane to me. So I thought, okay, what if anybody who had a laptop could just come and talk about things that interest them? Duh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> to me, it's, it's, um, it seemed very, I mean, you know, as a triple immigrant, of course I haven't been in situations when you can't, you can't even afford to go to a lecture, right? You just buy a, I don't know, used book for a one pound on Amazon and, sit on the tube while you're going to your customer service job and read in the morning and there's nobody to talk with about whatever you're reading, whatever you're thinking about. Um, and I, I thought, okay, what if this was affordable? What if some people could also make money doing this? Um, so yeah, there, these were my considerations at the time. You, also in that original article, you used the, the term unbossing, which I love. And it's sort of oh, this idea... What yeah, is that? you wrote... Un unbossing was basically that, okay, the gatekeepers are dead, but we're still pretending like we need to go through gatekeepers. And this resonates so deeply because the entire time writing my book, I'm like, well, I must be missing something. I must need to get, I must like need to get approval. And the reality is like, you don't need approval anymore. And that discomfort is so dizzying for some people that they seek the approval. Right. And it's like, no, you can you can just do things in this world. But we all grew up with these scripts that say we need to look to the boss for approval. 
I now I remember it, but I also I think I've changed my mind about this in the past four years. Yeah, this is exactly I'd love to hear that. Four years ago, because what I think is happening now, and this is absolutely true for me, because I've deviated from multiple parts and created my own combination of, you know, areas of expertise and 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 my non-existent pedigree. I don't know why Stephen Fry is on my mind today, but Stephen Fry said this thing that the, the good thing about going to Oxford or Cambridge is that you don't have to deal with not having to have gone there. That's it. And I do think now that the amount of energy it takes for me to balance out the fact that I don't really have an academic or professional pedigree. I mean, I have good degrees, and yeah, but you know, I'm in rooms with people who never, ever have to think about feeling that they belong to the room because of, you know, where they, got, where they went to school or, you know, their first couple of uh, workplaces. And what I feel through, you know, the, the grants that I'm in and the programs that I'm in is that if you, like, you can choose not to go through the traditional Victorian, you know, good high school, good university, good internship, good first job, and then you start your company and then you go to a good accelerator and blah, blah, blah is that you have to you have to create your own gatekeepers because there are gatekeepers and now you have to create your own combination depending on where you want to get in and which is very very um familiar to startup founders when you create your investor portfolio basically your cap table and as opposed to a traditional form of gatekeeping where a lot of the rules are really old and independent of you, and both parties know what they expect uh, or what to expect. When it's your own gatekeeping setup, you don't know, right? Like people, like even in the best cases, you know, with these amazing grants that are, you know, proliferating on the internet now, a lot of people don't know why they won. You know, they... You, you meet them, you talk with them, and some people are like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. So it's a very, it's a black box. And I think now I think that one underexplored positive of a traditional gatekeeping model for some people, for the very few people who actually qualify, is that it was not a black box. Whereas now yeah, we're kind of alone with figuring out your own gatekeepers and the rules and the co implicit contracts and whatever. Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community, the Pathless Path community, where you can find others on unconventional paths. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com slash membership. All those links you can find below and back to the episode. I think that resonates a lot. And I mean, I had the advantage of going through some of the traditional path and it it helps me understand how the world works, right? It's, I think over the long term, these scripts are going to soften, right? Because, but they still matter. 
And right. if you are going to take your own path, I need you need to spend more time understanding how the world actually works instead of how you want it to work. And I think that's a big challenge for people on unconventional paths. And I mean, for you, you've had the advantage of emigrating three times and yeah. restarting your life. And in that experience, you've had to learn so you many things. Lost. Yeah, um, one of the but it one... takes a long time. <laughs> it takes a long time, and sometimes it's really surprising. I, I mean, I, I was in Brussels for a couple of years during the pandemic, and it's it's very it was very cold in my apartment, even if the you know I put on the heating. And so at some point, I bought myself a Patagonia vest because I thought I'm not going to get rheumatism, you know, in my thirties <laughs> just because of the climate. And I sometimes would go to. <laughs> You know, Zoom calls, I don't know, Some somebody invited me to give a talk and whatever, and I would be in, you know, it would be, I don't know, 2 a.m. my time because it would be in the U.S. And so it's very cold in my Brussels apartment. I would put on my Patagonia vest over my my outfit, and people spoke to me like I went to Stanford. <laughs> like, it's just nobody asked. It's just there's this woman calling in in a Patagonia vest. Surely she was my classmate, and I just loved <laughs> I was like, guys, just get yourself a either a, a real or a fake vest, and whatever <laughs> Patagonia vest cosplay, much, much cheaper. Just yeah, just put it on. I learned this in a cold country; it works. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do sense that at least in the U.S., there is much more looseness about class and credentials. Um, these things still matter, but it's like. It's it's going to help you, but you can also sort of succeed without those, maybe more than any other country. Um, would you resonate with that? I actually don't. I mean, may, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how. I mean, I know you haven't spent tons of time in the U.S., but you've been exposed to it more in the past few years. I did spend a lot of time in the U.S., and, and almost all of my investors are in the U.S., and fifty-five percent of our users at Interinteract are in the U.S. So. I had a very interesting conversation about this with Emma Shear, which is that he's the he he's worked the, at he was Twitch. Yeah, and recently was a CEO of Twitch, and he's a, a good friend and investor in Interinteract. So two things I was I would say two things. One is that what was very difficult for me in the UK at the beginning was that I was this restarting, you know went through hardship, self-made woman narrative, right? When I was fundraising or pitching or talking at a startup, whatever. And that narrative doesn't work in the UK. So the first weird thing was learning how what I am and what I'm good at and what's good about me is very much welcome in the US. So this kind of hypomanic, you know, explorer, pioneer, narrative is really really strong there in the uk no in the uk you can't do everything went fine you know like the kurt vonnegut story like everything went, went fine and then i fell into a hole and then with my great strengths <laughs> and knowledge i rebuilt myself you can't do that in the uk you have to show that you've been always lucky mm. so good births good parents good school good kindergarten good school blah, 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 blah. and then oh then they want you to continue to be lucky at their company or whatever you know with their money in the U.S., you have to show that there was something that you had to overcome because everybody knows in the U.S. that if you have good parents, good schools, that will keep you afloat. Why they want to see, like, okay, what can you do? Why should I hire you? Like, we have hundreds of millions of people. Other people want this job. Other people want this check. 
why or airtime why should it be you and so that was a that was a, a, a kind of fit i think for for me um and and there's also this thing that in in europe especially in the uk which is a northern kingdom masquerading as a free society there is only one real success and that's decided before you were born so you are gaslighted in this weird kind of hassle culture that you can change your fate but you can't really do that or very few people can do that and in the u.s there is a huge pl plurality of success so you can be you know like there are so many different ways of being a top person in the u.s so if you yeah this you can always be that and that's just as good right because there's no nobility in the European sense. But I only really started like understanding these nuances because on the surface, so many things are similar. But I started spending more time in New York, which on the surface seems harder than London. But because New York is what it says it is, people are more relaxed. Because people can deal with hardship and people can deal with competition and people can deal with discomfort if it's if there's integrity and you know what you're getting and you know, the social contract works. And I know that in the many places in the U.S., the social contract stopped working because you no longer get this thing where, oh, the state will look after you less. By exchange, you can go farther because a lot of people can't go farther. And so you, you see the political and social crisis in the U.S. simply coming from the realization that in, you know, vast parts of the country, the contract no longer works. But I think in the big hubs, it still works. Yeah, New York knows exactly what it is. It's like if you put effort in and like kick ass, you and you succeed, people will be like, "Oh, you're making a lot of money. You deserve that money." Absolutely, <laughs> you can you can stop any passerby in New York, ask them to summarize the city, and they will be correct. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think you're spot on about the U.S. You basically need to be in a growing city now. And San Fran's a unique case. I think it has huge uh, halo effect from the tech economy, but it has its own issues. But yeah, I'd love to shift to a little more inter-intellect. How many salons have you held at this point? Myself or the platform? The platform. I don't know the exact figure, but 4,000 something. Wow, that's amazing. And these are typically two to three hour things uh, that people do. Maybe just share a little bit about what these are yeah. like. So I guess it varies now. It varies. So for those of you who don't know Interintellect, uh, we're a curated events marketplace uh, for artists and intellectuals where anybody with the idea and the ambition can come and start their own events, online or offline, can be a one-off or a series, and build their own community around those ideas and make some money along the way if they want to. Um, we have a community tier with the most passionate attendees who can come to our forum and hang out together and with the hosts. Um, they're a very um, deep thinking and deep feeling community with a lot of big relationships, book projects, collaborations, friendships, group holidays coming out of just people meeting um, in our community or among our hosts. Um, the standard intern salon is a two around two hours, um, a two-hour-long online gathering where you will talk about an idea, a book, a big question of life, moderated by a host or multiple hosts. 
Um, and then we have a variety of different variations on this series that run for over a year or indefinitely. Super salons where a celebrity comes and hangs out with you. Um, members-only gatherings where people just play Cards Against Humanity or Werewolf or learn how to, I don't know, produce music on, <laughs> on their computers. Um, and then we have a bunch of um, offline hubs around the world. And those people come together often just to go to the museum together or have a picnic um, and just enjoy having a mind <laughs> without having to worry about what it means that you want to think and talk and and, and challenge yourself. Um, I think it's the most beautiful thing that people can do. And I'm very happy to have this job. Yeah, one frame I've been thinking about is I sort of think they're question people and then they're answer people. Question people love exploring the questions, right? And they'll just keep going and digging deeper. And answer people love to know what they think. Here's what I think. Here's exactly. And they, they don't want to explore the question. I'm wondering if you think this resonates and like wh- how that would map to like all the humans on earth. Like I sort of think there's like just five to 10% of people that are just question people and they need to find each other. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's probably very similar to the openness. Um, yeah, the number in the in the Big Five psychology test, uh, openness to experience. I think it's called. Um, I always say that a good host is always on the fence. You can't really host an event having a very firm opinion, because then you will not be able to really neutrally navigate the room and ensuring that everybody is heard and everybody gets you know, undivided attention. Um, I don't remember when I was 27, I was still in Budapest and I was having a, a Christmas dinner with a couple of old college girlfriends of mine. And I had this sudden vision or realization as I was sitting there listening to people that would probably we would call them maybe normies today or conformists. I don't know. It's it's a dangerous dichotomy because we all have everything, right? It's just sure. a of proportion. And I realized that, oh my God, a lot of these women that I, I knew at the age of 27 kind of stop, or at least periodically. And they say, okay, I'm 27. This is what I learned. This is where I traveled. This is who I slept with. These are the internships that I did. And from now on, I'm going to live off of this. I'm going to be not a maker of the world, but a, but a user. And I remember sitting there like this little idiot elf that I am. <laughs> Guys, what the fuck are you talking about? You haven't even started yet. I don't know shit. I'm just starting. Are you seriously going to stop here? Nothing has ever happened to me. I was just like in my early 20s making mistakes. Give it to me now. I want to go. And I think for my kind of understanding of the the proportions was more like it's 20% of people who kind of feel that, oh, my youth is just the first offer that I don't accept, you know? Yeah, you have the first offer. Everybody gets the devil's pact. Everybody gets the devil's offer. When people are like, oh, you wanted to be an opera singer. Well, but here's, you know, being a banker and singing karaoke with your friends or Oh, you wanted to be a quarterback. Well, here is like a very shitty local version of that where you play something on your computer. You know, and, and I felt that, oh, I got all the devil's p- offers in my 20s. Like all of it was thrown at me. And I thought, okay, do I want to be this little 
over bloated nobody in this tiny country having received the least challenging or meaningful versions of my dreams? Or am I going to pack and sell everything, go to the hardest place in Europe? Like I, I went to the hardest place where my, my passport, would get, passport would get me and see what I'm made of. And to me, because my parents are very famous and, you know, my entire life when I was young was like, people would look at my ID card and be like, there you go, miss. You know, <laughs> I mean, it had, a, it had more negative sides than positive. But this thing of like, you know, getting into the room was not a problem. And I, had, I wanted to experience being this complete nobody coming from Eastern Europe. Like Eastern Europeans are really looked down upon in London. So you're this discriminated against minority. Um, and I wanted to see that because I, I didn't want to grow old and, or, or just like be an adult in a city and have children without ever having, you know, gathered the data about my own abilities because then how do I know who I am? And I do think that a lot of people who are, who stay with the first offer, they don't really know. And the, the reason why people go into your community and my community and want to read about the pathless path and the boundless thinking is because the curiosity doesn't go away. And I think the cost of continuing to think deep into your adulthood is much lower now than any other time. Like you can stay, you know, where you are and you can have the job that you picked for yourself when you were 20 and still read your book and gain something and change your thinking and maybe even value what you already have more. And I, I really deeply respect people who go and try and then return to their roots, whether that's a religious reconversion or actually going home. Or in some cases, you know, I have friends who's parents divorced in older age and went back to their high school sweethearts. Like even that happens, but that's your choice now. If you have never tried, then it's not your choice yet. It just looks like it. I love that framing. It, you, life's giving you offers and you're saying, uh, I'm going to try the next offer I get. And it's funny. I think my wife and I sort of fell into this trap with childhood, like child or not childhood, but uh, having a child, um, you sort of think, okay, we're having a child. We need to get serious about life. <laughs> and the great thing is the child. People. I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> you seem like very serious young parents. <laughs> well, the thing you realize is like, what, what I mean serious is like, you have to pick one location. You have to like know what you're doing. You have to like buy a house, right? And it's like, the, the great thing is the offer came in the form of the child and she sort of reignited our adventurous spirit. It's like, oh, we're still here. Like, we're still curious people. We're probably going to explore. It's just going to be better with a child. <laughs> and uh, it, you, it sort of never goes away, the need to have to remind yourself that, like, life is a continuous act of finding out and asking questions. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it does get harder as you age. <laughs> this is so... Yeah, when, when people tell me, like, I'm going to get a stable job or we will have a child... <laughs> You know, or, or we we will get Where's a hack. That will solve the problem. And I'm like, no, you will have a new problem. 
Yeah, where where is the stable it's a huge problem? Now you've just given yourself a fourteen year long problem, which is fine if this is the problem you want to have. But to think about these insane, you know, life decisions as something that will solve the problems of like you don't know what you want to do with your life. That's horrible. And so many people kind of like, you know, do this kind of logical swap. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not, that's not, that's not how, how it goes. But I have a question for you. Do you think, yeah. I mean, this is something that I, I spent almost all of the winter kind of mulling over and, and, and thinking about. Do you think that conformism or non-conformism, if we, like, I know it's not a separate, two separate polarities, but let's, just for the sake of argument, pretend that there is no overlap. Do you think it's something that you're born with and everybody has a built-in baseline of adventurousness and we should just like let people do whatever they want? Or do you think it's completely, you know, a decision question or an environment question or a level of information about the world question? I think it's both. I think there's definitely a genetic setting, right? You can, you can often see it by looking at your siblings and being like, oh, I have seen them make many decisions. And it's like obvious something's happened there. But I think it's environment too. Like, I think in a place like the US where the labor market is really good and you can make good money and stable, like you can relatively find stable, good paying jobs here. And uh, I think that uh, gets a lot of people indexing too far to the conformism, right? Where they're probably overpricing the safety and security and underpricing adventure and risk, right? I think, um, I mean, Nassim Taleb writes about this in Anti-Fragile, where he's like, um, people, um, people think they're selecting for less randomness in their life, but actually picking like a job invites more randomness because if you leave a, if you randomly get fired, that is extremely disruptive to your life versus my path. Like I don't, I have no idea what I'm going to make this year, next year, next month, but I've developed an emotional resilience for that. And I'm not going to make zero, (laughs) which is really interesting. So long answer is like, Definitely genetic, but I think the environment nudges people um, away from the adventure on average in many places. I, yeah, I, I'm sorry to say that I, I really agree with Talib here because I think it's it's similar. It's a different way of of, of saying that, you know, you, you, you choose something that you think is a solution and you're, you've just given yourself another problem. Yeah. And I think it's interesting for me because I was a bit of a conformist person in my 20s. Like I followed the default path. You posted a photo from like, I don't know, like an office. And it was so strange. It was some Photoshop situation. It's weird. It's weird for me to look at because it's like, how did I end up so deep down that path? And I think um, the thing is like, I was good enough at it and good at fitting in. I always felt like an outsider though, because I didn't grow up with like an elite path. Um, So I was always sort of pretending and performing. Um, And I just ignored the signals that it was the wrong path because when you're succeeding and making good money, everybody, everybody implicitly supports your life. And I think the reason many people don't take an alternative path like mine is because they are accurately realizing 
that they will get less support, which is true. Um, and I think this is why communities like yours are so important um, because you can just go enroll in your membership and instantly find the support you need. I think so. And I think it kind of goes back to a, a, maybe an even more basic problem that we, we have, which is that most people never get good feedback. We have this weird kind of warped way of looking at people. So when we see somebody who is beautiful, well-dressed, well-spoken, you know, uh, kind, charitable, smart, funny, like whatever they're doing that pleases you, you think, oh, I'm sure he hears this all the time. And no, <laughs> because everybody else also mm. thinks this. So oftentimes... Just like I think you know that Michael Nelson notes on like the 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 insane you know ROI on 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 just raising aspirations, just like spotting something that's good and telling the other person can change a life. Nobody ever gives pe people give good feedback when they have to, when they want something, when they are courting. Like there are specific scenarios, but it's very very rare. And so I, I, I often think like if you want to see more out, 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 out of the box thinking around yourself, adventurousness, you know, dedication in the arts, in self-learning, in or self-led learning, in, you know, independent research. Just tell, tell somebody like, oh, actually what you're talking about is really interesting. I would like to read about this more. What are the seven books I should read? And, you know, by the time that person puts the email together for you with the seven books, they're basically writing a PhD proposal. And who knows what happens? You know, next thing you know, paid Substack, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Joe Rogan interview, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really, really, really worth your time. And, 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 and you know, I just, anybody who's listen, listening to this, if there are two people in your life right now who are just amazing at something, please text them. Just tell them. Whatever it is. Any job well done from gardening to playing the cello to just being a good conversationalist that you can trust and, 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 and you know, just tell them. Maybe they don't know. I'm pretty sure they don't know. Yeah, I love this. I've done some group coaching and some one-on-one -on -one coaching. I don't really do it anymore, but one exercise is the best self exercise, which is just email five friends and ask them when you've seen, they've seen you at your best self. Yeah. 100% of the time. People are like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I didn't realize people saw this in me, right? Because they they're not getting the feedback. And like I actually spend a lot of my time doing this. It's so important to me because when I first took the leap, I felt so ashamed of what I was doing. I felt like I was a bad person for like wasting my talent and doing a weird path and not having a story and I, I didn't really have a lot of active support. I had support in the sense of if I failed, would people take me in? Sure. Um, but people weren't like rooting for me. And I think rooting for people is so important in today's world um, because it, it actually takes so little <laughs> to change someone's life. It's kind of crazy. Um, I'm sure you've seen examples of this in your community. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the driving forces of inter-intellect. And I think, you know, as you're also, I think it's important that we are, you know, honest with people who are listening to us, that if you deviate from 
the immediate norms of your immediate community, it's possible that at least temporarily you will lose the support of those nearest you. Just because even just, you know, going against other people's expectations can be a little bit offensive or shocking or disorienting to another person. And it's in those moments when the wider circles of friends, online communities, writing groups, the weak ties become so important. And just trust the process and know that most of the people, even if you lose a couple of friends for a few months, they will come around and they will understand that this your choice is not about them. It's not a, a criticism, implicit criticism of their lives. You know, they also are the heroes of their own movie and they see you through the prism of that. I think that's very, very important. And and I can only attest to the incredible, humbling, gratitude, you know, exploding feeling of, you know, the moment when you realize that, oh my God, people want me to do what I'm doing. I mean, for me, I think still, I, I every time, you know, people, you know, sign up for an internet membership or they reach out to me or they just like talk to me on Twitter or on Substack, I'm like, oh my God, people actually want me to continue doing what I'm doing because they need my work. And and I think as far as human experience or human experiences, plural, go, that's kind of the best thing you can get. That's as good as it gets. Are there any people we should highlight here to give them a boost of... Uh... <laughs> I would really recommend for people to check out the 2023 uh, Interintellect Fellows. Uh, this was our first fellowship um, where we supported financially um, five um, independent researchers and makers. Um, and you can find them through our website, interintellect.com. Uh, you will find job transition as one of the areas of research, talent, but there's also friendship, um, education, and public philosophy. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. Um, I wish I could have given more money. <laughs> Because this is like a micro, micro grant. But still, you know, I, my life was changed by, you know, a couple of thousands of dollars that enabled me to go to SF in 2019. And then a tiny EV grant I won that enabled me to move out of London um, the same year. 2019 was a crazy year for me. Um, and so I know that most people just don't have that little, little, you know, amount of savings that can just like get you to the next level of the game and so you know keep an eye out on interintellects fellowships but also there are so many good fellowships now almost every community or you know organization is giving away just a couple of thousand dollars and sometimes that's all you need i love that yeah I'm, i pull yeah, them up there's so much money Brian, and people want to give you this money Brian. take the money <laughs> Brian Cam, Mary Bajoric, and uh, Linus Liu. I'll I'll link them up. I uh, I, I definitely want live mm, two two rounds. Oh, amazing! I'll pull up the other names and link them. Um, but yeah, I know we've talked about things I might be able to do to support them. So stay tuned for that. And um, how has Tyler Cowen helped to raise your aspirations? Because he has this emergent ventures program and he's supported so many people. It's amazing. At, at, a, at a scale that just blows my mind so much. I think he's definitely one of the three main mentors uh, for me. I'm always a little bit reluctant to say that because he's like a public treasure. So you can't just like monopolize Tyler. But well, he, I think I think this is an interesting thing because like he really cares. 
and just a small vote of confidence for him can have a huge effect. And this is possible for many people, I think. I remember I I had lunch with Tyler in March 2019, uh, right before I went to yes. I told you that was a crazy year. And we had lunch. And I remember I was so nervous that I he ate like four courses in front of me and I, I was still <laughs> starter. And then and then I went home and my friend who was another winner and who was kind of advocating for me was like, how is it going to go? And I remember just like crying for an hour, like, this is completely pointless. I would never get this. I will never even apply. And then I didn't apply. And then I went to SF the second time in in August 2019, and I was yet again having lunch with another EV winner. Always have lunches with people. That's that's a really good, good strategy, even if you forget to eat. And and I re- <laughs> okay. So I was meeting with this person at OpenAI, and we were having OpenAI food. And I got so upset by the notion that I would need to apply to EV an EV grant and be rejected that I, I went and I was crying in OpenAI's toilet. So you know, this, this my simulation is weird. So here I am crying in OpenAI's toilet in San Francisco and deciding I will never, ever apply because who would ever give me a grant? And then in October 2019, right before I left London, everything was going terribly, really badly. And so I thought, okay, so now I feel so shitty that if I apply now and when I get rejected, I will not even feel it because like I'm already feeling terrible. So I applied and I literally got the grant the next day. And I was like, oh my God, Anna, grow up. What the fuck? <laughs> and I was, I learned so much because I have this instinct when something potentially good is happening that I just become super depressed and decide that this is never going to happen. Why would this happen? And now I'm like, no, you just have to try. Just put yourself into another difficult situation. So this is not the most difficult situation you have to deal with. Deal with it. And realize that you were wrong. This works, guys. This is guys. This is my recipe for a good life. I love it. Yeah, learning. It, it seems like oh, it's yeah, inevitable. You're great. This has nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's it's amazing how we all like we all need to take like the slow, dumb, like hard way. Like it's just how life works, and it it sucks, but it's also like beautiful too. Um. Wanted to do some rapid fire questions. Um, okay. If you had to organize a dinner party, alive or dead, who would be at the dinner party with you? Five people. Um, it doesn't have to be five. You can change the table size if you want. Definitely a couple of Romans. So like Caesar, Mark, Anthony, maybe. Yeah, a couple of people from there. Um, maybe Seneca. I would be interested. So one of them, maybe Mark Anthony would be interesting because I don't fully understand the guy. Who else, who else, who else? Uh, probably Da Vinci because I would be too curious and apparently he was a sweetheart. Um, who else, who else, who else? I'm thinking I would want some religious person. Descartes would be interesting. Either Descartes or Leibniz or Spinoza, like one of these three guys. I would have definitely have a conversation. Uh, I would probably want to talk to James Joyce because I don't like his books and I want to, to I want to like them. So <laughs> if I got to like him as a person, that would help. And Elena Ferrante, 
I, w- I want to bitch with her about boys. <laughs> I like it. Uh, who are your path role models? Path? I, when I was 11, I was in a church and I heard a Port Clare, so a Franciscan female monk, a nun, talk about her first pilgrimage and becoming a nun. And it was a story of leaving everything that you thought you were behind and choosing a very different path. And I think about this speech that she gave very frequently ever since then. Um, And I think it's just the most beautiful ancient human story of humans, you know, originating somewhere in Africa. And there always being a couple of people who are like, okay, this this was great. <laughs> now let's see what's on the other side of the mountain. And sometimes you have to go because there's no food or no wusa. Sometimes you're fighting with your brother and you have to leave. But sometimes you're just like, those seem like interesting birds. Anybody else? Let's go. If you had to live in one place uh, for the rest of your life, where are you picking? I, but I can leave it so I can travel. <laughs> yeah, you can travel. Still got planes and maybe teleportation in the future. I love how seriously you're thinking about this question. In a little bit different reality, uh, I would want to be in Israel because I would want to be in a place that is the source of things. So it would have to be a location that is like, you know, the end and the beginning somehow. Uh, What's the most surprising thing that's emerged out of in interintellect people getting married to each other <laughs> how many so far yeah i think five or six very serious relations <laughs> and all of them moved countries continents for each other it's beautiful wow uh any interintellect babies yet not yet but we started kinder intellect which is a salon series where you can bring your baby um and because a lot of I people need to have, attend yeah yeah you have to come and or you can host one and talk about, you know, because they're always thematic. Oh, that'd be so much fun. <laughs> you can talk about immigration and adventures while a parent. Um, so we're preparing the ground. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a competition with uh, Matt Clifford, my friend, because EF, which is combining startup founders, yeah. they already had babies. But they are 11-year-old and we are like four years old. So, but I have to catch up, you know. I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm counting on many of the the people working on stuff to figure out all this schooling and future uh, stuff for my daughter. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Where, where can people learn more about uh, what you're working on anywhere you want to send people? Yes. Come to interintellect.com. And now we also have a Substack, interintellect.substack.com where I have my Friday digest, which I will write later today. And it's so good. <laughs> it's all the things you should read, guys. Don't look anywhere else. Just read my digest and read those things. And that's all you need to know about the world. It It is so good. I'm just like, how is she reading so much good stuff every week? <laughs> I don't know. I wish Always I... Always been a reader. Up and just would sleep or something. <laughs> well, that's not happening. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I, I will link those up. Highly recommend Interintellect. I've been a member for a few years now. I have attended many uh, uh, amazing Orpheus, events. Yeah? yeah, and just helping me make friends around the world. It's really uh, enriched my life. I, I really mean it when I say uh, 
you've created positive externalities by your creation for my life um, that are sort of undeniable. And I appreciate that. I'm rooting for you and excited to see what comes next. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm very, very, um, you know, happy to have learned more about you and all the all the wonderful questions also came as a nice surprise. So thank you. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.